Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A divided Supreme Court said the Navy can limit deployment and training for 35 SEALs and other special operations forces who are refusing on religious grounds to get vaccinated against COVID-19. A lower court judge had ordered the Navy to assign and deploy the sailors without regard to their unvaccinated status. But the Biden administration said that would jeopardize safety and mission success, given that SEALs often operate in tight quarters, including on submarines. My guest is Dorit Reese, a professor at the University of California, Hastings College of Law. What was the issue in this case before the court? The question before the court was, there's a challenge to the Navy denial of religious exemption to their vaccine mandate. The Navy decided to refuse mandate to the plaintiffs, and the lower court decided to stay the application of the mandate and order the Navy not to treat them differently in any way. The Navy didn't want to deploy unvaccinated people, and the lower court refused to modify the stay, refused to allow the, the Navy not to deploy unvaccinated people. The Supreme Court was to decide whether the Navy may refuse to deploy unvaccinated people. There was no opinion for the court. Does the concurring opinion of Justice Brett Kavanaugh tell us anything? Yes, it does. So two things. First of all, it's very usual not to have a fully reasoned opinion on this kind of emergency stay cases. As a reminder, the case hasn't been fully briefed or decided. And the question is, should we uphold or overturn an emergency stay? The court usually issues this per quorum, though sometimes it does add a short opinion. The concurrence tells us that for at least some of the justices, the main issue was how much difference to give to the Navy's decisions who to deploy. The court has a long tradition of deferring to the Navy's judgment and the military's judgment, as uh, Justice Cavano highlighted. And at least for some of the justices, that was probably the issue here as well. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin had urged the court to remedy what he called an extraordinary and unprecedented intrusion into core military affairs that has no precedent in American history. Is he right? Is there any precedent for a court stepping in and telling the military what to do? No. Well, let me qualify that. There is a history of the court telling the military sometimes what to do, but there is no case in which the court told the military to deploy people that the military thought were not deployment appropriate. The secretary is completely right that that's a very unprecedented intrusion into the military's affairs. So is this basically about the principle of separation of powers? Yes. 
I will add that there are some things in uh, the dissent that do raise questions. So the military acknowledges that they're subject to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act requirements of only not respecting religious interests when it's a compelling interest in the least restrictive means. They seem to have made it practically impossible to get a religious exemption. And Justice Alito is right that in any other context, that would be seen as a problem, as bad faith application of religious exemption. And here, too, by doing it so aggressively, the military created an appearance of not really taking seriously the religious exemption. There are two parts to this. First of all, it might be worth for lawmakers to consider whether the Religious Freedom Restoration Act should, in fact, apply to the military. This case was not under the First Amendment. It was under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, even for the dissent. So there's a question. Should the Religious Freedom Restoration Act apply to the military? Second, if the Religious Freedom Restoration Act does apply to the military, the military should at least assess religious exemption in good faith. Considering whether deploying these people is is appropriate, is military discretion, but not even considering religious exemption is tricky. In the military, soldiers have to obey orders. If you allow soldiers to start questioning orders, what happens? So when it comes to soldiers, soldiers' rights are limited and they do have to obey orders. However, there are limits to that. Soldiers' rights are limited while they serve, but they're not completely out of the window and there are some protection. In this case, it would have been a very different situation if the military said the Religious Freedom Restoration Act does not apply to us and does not give soldiers this right. But the military didn't. The military acknowledged that there's a right to religious exemption, just didn't take it very seriously. The other part of this is also the question is, what exactly do are we talking about? So the main question is deployment decision. In theory... The military wasn't saying we're going to fire these people for religious exemption or punish them. They were saying we don't want to deploy people who are unvaccinated at this point. There's a difference between saying to the military, you have to seriously consider religious exemption, and saying to the military, you have to deploy people you think are unsafe. You could say you have to seriously consider religious exemption, but you still have the discretion to decide who to deploy, and it's not up to the court in any way, shape, and form to tell you that. People with religious exemption can do other things if the military takes the sense to deploy with them. So do you think that this was wrongly decided then? I think this was rightly decided. I think the court was right to say the military gets to decide who to deploy. However, I also think that two things should be changed. First, we should consider whether it's appropriate for the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to also apply to the military. If we want to allow the military discretion, the act probably shouldn't apply to them. And second, while deployment decisions should be military discretion, if the military says that it's giving religious exemption, it should probably take them seriously. Either make a case that you don't have to give religious exemption at all or take them seriously. I saw a headline that says the Supreme Court splits on whether Joe Biden is commander-in-chief. I don't think that's a fair description of the case. A better description would be to say the Supreme Court splits on whether the military has to uh, limit its deployment decision according to religious freedom, or the Supreme Court splits on whether the military has to respect religious freedom in its deployment decision. And this doesn't end the case, does it? No. So there's a number of things that need to happen next. This is a decision about a, a temporary stay or not stay. 
the case is still going forward. And this was about what happens while the case is being litigated. The lower courts will have to decide whether the military violated either a law or the constitutional rights of the plaintiff. And then it will probably be appealed higher. And it will probably get back to the Supreme Court on that question. Also, the the judge below, Judge Reed O'Connor, is well known for his very conservative opinions and for ruling against Obamacare. So the United States judiciary has always been politically appointed, and and especially in question where the law is at least somewhat vague, politics naturally come in. However, we expect our judges, whatever the political opinions, to follow the law. And if Judge Reed doesn't, I expect the higher courts to pull him back in. In other words, politics come in. It's almost inevitable. We appoint judges politically more than most developed countries, but there's a limit to that, and judges' first job is still to follow the law. Thanks, Dorit. That's Professor Dorit Reese of the University of California Hastings College of Law. The confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson are over, but the voting is not. Jackson is continuing to meet with senators on Capitol Hill this week in a push for bipartisan support of her nomination. Three Republican senators voted in favor of Jackson's nomination to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, but there were sharp attacks on the judge by Republican senators at her hearings. Joining me is Gloria Brown-Marshall, a professor of constitutional law at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. How do you think Judge Jackson handled herself in the hearings? I think Judge Jackson has shown grace under pressure, and she has handled herself with spectacular patience, given the type of political gabbings that are going on between the parties using this platform to get back at each other for failed nominees in the past, such as Robert Bork, and the treatment, as it's been alleged by the Republicans, is being fraught with all types of political intrigue with Kavanaugh and even Clarence Thomas. So I think they're taking out past grudges on each other and using this platform and using her. I think most of us would not be able to take this kind of abuse of the record and personal attacks about her and coddling criminals and people who possess child pornography and keep a level head. But she's been showing herself true this entire time. She sailed through three confirmation hearings before this committee. She's replacing another liberal on the court. Did you expect such attacks by Republicans a lot on culture war issues? Yes. And I especially felt that given the midterm elections coming up, that these politicians are speaking more to their base. They're creating commercials for themselves as they go into midterm elections, and they're trying to gain some momentum with their voters and supporters. And a lot of this is grandstanding and hyperbole to the highest degree that they're using this platform as a means to do this. It's shameful, but it's very political as well. So I expected the Republicans to behave this way, and I do expect them not to vote for her overall. And they had no intention of voting for her in the first place because it was going to be so divisive around party lines that there was little expectation that their vote was needed. And I think they want to paint her so that when she does ascend to the bench, she'll have some paint like that of Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing when so many things came out about him. And, of course, Clarence Thomas and the Anita Hill testimony about his behavior with sexual harassment. 
So Republican Senator Ted Cruz questioned her on critical race theory, read from books in the curriculum of a school that she's on the board of, and asked her, do you agree that babies are racist? Was that appropriate, and would that have been asked of a white nominee? I don't think it would have been asked of a white nominee, but I think also that critical race theory is a dog whistle right now for a lot of people who don't want to deal with actual American history. American history is racist. And for those people who have done well in this country, that's fine. But to turn a a blind eye to the nation's documented history and then to say we're not supposed to teach it to children or try to teach how we can undo some of this damage or prevent it from happening in the first place. So it's really an issue that many people on the conservative or right who want to gain points on the political spectrum have been using, and so they're using it now. These are politicians. There's been a concerted effort by Republicans to paint the judge as soft on crime. I think that she's written as a district court judge and as an appellate court judge, I believe, nearly 600 opinions, maybe more. And so the job of people who want to oppose her nomination or paint her before she ascends to the bench is to find the most scandalous, controversial things in her record and just keep saying it over and over again. It was successful for Donald Trump, and so they're trying to make it successful for them as conservatives. And once again, playing to their base to try to get those conservative voters to vote for them in the midterm elections. I think it's a political ploy. And I think it's scandalous, but these are politicians, and these are the highest-ranked politicians in our country. So they know how to play dirty, they know how to throw mud, and they want to get back at the Democrats because of what happened with Brett Kavanaugh, you know, and what was certainly something that should have happened with Clarence Thomas. But they believe that trying to use critical race theory is throwing meat to the lions. Critical race theory, is, to me, is nothing more than teaching about Um, history of America that involves race and racial oppression. But to turn it into something that is hurting children and therefore should not be taught K through 12 is what they're using. And she's on the board and I'm on boards and other people who believe in public service are on boards of nonprofit organizations. We don't know everything that goes on within that organization. And she didn't know the books that the children were reading, but she's being held account for it. You know, a politician will use any type of ammunition to throw mud when mud is necessary in their in their mind. You mentioned a dog whistle and soft on crime is is another dog whistle. The Times wrote that Thurgood Marshall, the nation's first black Supreme Court justice, as you know, faced similarly coded language during his confirmation hearing 55 years ago. So we haven't progressed very much. And that's why we need things like black history <laughs> to talk about lack of movement. We need, we need to talk about these issues and so that we can better understand why we're not moving. Why is this such a trigger for conservatives? Why is it? At some point, we stopped believing in Santa Claus. And we have to understand that there are parts of this country's history that are painful, not just painful to the people who are hearing it now, but painful to the people who went through it then. I think it's difficult as well um, for us to actually believe that she would be considered soft on crime just because she's not rabid about it, as so many people want um, a, a person to be. And she's supposed to be someone with a judicial temperament who's supposed to look at both sides on the scales of justice. 
and then decide which side is supposed to win based on the evidence or which side is one that should be sentenced because of the evidence. And she's been doing that. And the sentences may not be what they wanted the sentences to be, but it's not as though she told the people that they were going free. She did sentence them to confinement. So I think that the fact that her brother is in the military as well as a police officer, that she has uncles who are police officers, that her uncle was the former um, police chief of Miami, and yet this doesn't seem to be enough to appease them. So I think this goes beyond what her record is, what her family is, what she's done. I think this goes beyond that. I think it's just a political ploy to try to undermine her as a nominee. The Republicans said that it wasn't going to be a circus like Kavanaugh. There weren't going to be personal attacks. But some of the attacks have been very personal. I mean, Tom Cotton said you twisted the law and you rewrote it so you could cut the sentence of a drug kingpin. That's what you did, Judge. I mean, it got really personal and intense. It was really personal and intense. You know, it should be embarrassing. Because at this point, what we're looking at is not just um, senators behaving badly, but wanting to make a public servant look as though they are not, uh, you know, uh, a person who cares about children, even though they have children. She has two girls. And also the fact that this is a, a way in which politicians can use their platform, this confirmation hearing, to throw shame onto the other political party. So this has, I think, little to do with her and more to do with revenge. And that's what it's it's just very vengeful. And they're using anything to wreak revenge on the process because they feel that their candidates, even though their nominees, even though they were made um, Supreme Court justices, it's not enough that they should have just had been able to float through and not have any hard questions about their past, about their beliefs and ideologies. And at this point, um, they're just going to keep throwing mud. Even though they know the Democrats have the votes, they're going to keep throwing mud until um, the end of this process to, to really feel their, their rancor and, and to make sure that everybody knows that they've gotten their revenge against the, the past nominees that they put forward and had to go through a very um, serious uh, testing. So tell us what she'll bring to the Supreme Court bench. I think she will bring persuasiveness. I think she will bring a level of insight because she has been a, a public defender. I think she'll also be someone who will bring um, a sense of coming together of the different sides as Justice Breyer did. I think it will also be a matter of bringing to the court her great insight as someone who was a trial court judge. And there are very few trial court judges who know what it's like to be on the time and, and place of the actual conflict. The appellate court judges see issues on appeal. They don't see the actual defendants. They don't see the witnesses. They don't see the life of the case. And so she's bringing that to the court. And I think that's a very important uh, measure, yeah, I would say, uh, over the last two decades, most of these justices have not had. Thanks for joining me on the show. That's Gloria Brown Marshall, professor of constitutional law at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. 
The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Welcome back, uh, Judge Jackson. Uh, Yesterday, you and I discussed the court's increasing reliance on issuing unsigned orders on its shadow docket. And less than an hour ago, um, the court once again used the shadow docket Uh, to throw out Wisconsin's redistricting maps. On Wednesday, during Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's Supreme Court confirmation hearings, Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar brought up a Supreme Court decision that for the first time this redistricting cycle overturned voting maps drawn by a state. In an unsigned order, a divided court threw out maps for Wisconsin's Assembly and Senate, maps that were selected by the Wisconsin Supreme Court and drawn by the Democratic governor, and that added an additional Assembly district with a majority of black voters. Joining me is elections law expert Richard Brafalt, a professor at Columbia Law School. These voting maps in question were drawn by the governor. How did that come about? This draws out of a Wisconsin redistricting process for the state legislature. The Wisconsin legislature passed its own maps where the governor vetoed them. There was then an impasse, and the voters who were suffering from malapportionment, as did the governor the legislature, basically asked the Wisconsin Supreme Court to draw new maps. The Wisconsin Supreme Court said, no, we're not good at drawing maps. You, governor, and you legislatures, submit to us your best efforts, and we will pick 
our major criterion is which map departs least from the pre-existing maps. Obviously, some departure is necessary to deal with population changes, but we're going to favor the map that otherwise has least change from the pre-existing maps. The Wisconsin Supreme Court, by a vote of four to three, picked the governor's map. It was not quite a partisan split. There were three Democrats and one Republican in the majority and, and three Republicans in the dissent. The thing that became controversial is that although the Wisconsin court said the governor's map did depart less from the pre-existing maps in the legislatures, the governor's map proposed seven black majority assembly districts in the Milwaukee uh, area. This is for the, the legislature. There are currently six. The legislature's map had proposed basically five. The governor's position was that due to the increased black share of the area population, you needed an additional map in order for the to black voters to receive their proportional share of representation, and that failure to do so would probably be a violation of the Voting Rights Act, and that intentionally doing so would not be a violation of the 14th Amendment. And in that, you basically see the governor trying to sort of uh, navigate this narrow space that says that voting maps that dilute minority voting strength violate the Voting Rights Act, but that a state cannot give excessive attention to race in drawing maps, even when they're trying to enhance minority representation. So the governor's position, which the Wisconsin Supreme Court, by a four to three vote, accepted, was that this additional district was necessary to avoid a Voting Rights Act violation and therefore did not violate the 14th Amendment. So, Rich, the U.S. Supreme Court left the congressional maps in place but tossed the legislative maps. Right. And for both the congressional and the legislative maps, the state Supreme Court standard was give us one that's the closest to the map that was adopted 10 years ago with appropriate adjustments for population change. In both cases, the state Supreme Court concluded that the governor's map did a better job of that. Various parties challenged both of those. What the U.S. Supreme Court said was that the governor's decision, which the state Supreme Court accepted, that the Voting Rights Act required an additional black majority district in the Milwaukee area, and that doing that wouldn't violate the 14th Amendment. The U.S. Supreme Court said the governor and the state Supreme Court, neither of them did enough to show that that was correct. They failed to show that the Voting Rights Act required this, and therefore they failed to show that it didn't violate the 14th Amendment and therefore, they reversed the decision to pick the Assembly and the Senate maps and sent it back to the state Supreme Court for further analysis, which could include keeping the governor's maps if there was additional evidence that showed that there was a strong Voting Rights Act requirement for the additional district. But where the Supreme Court was, the governor seemed to rely exclusively or almost exclusively on the need for proportionality, given the black share of the area population, and that that's not enough to satisfy a Voting Rights Act argument. And therefore, there was not a good Voting Rights Act defense to the challenge that this was excessively attentive to race in violation of the 14th Amendment. The court said the question that our Voting Rights Act precedents ask and the court failed to answer is whether a race-neutral alternative that did not add a seventh majority black district would deny black voters equal political opportunity. Is that what Supreme Court precedents call for? Because in dissent... Justice Sonia Sotomayor, joined by Justice Elena Kagan, called the decision unprecedented and extraordinary. Yes, it's unprecedented and extraordinary in several ways. For one, 
normally the burden is on the challenger to prove that race was the predominant motivating factor, whereas here the burden seems to be being put on the governor or state Supreme Court. So one thing is that totally shifted the burden. Normally a map gets adopted. The challenger says this violates the Equal Protection Clause, and then the plaintiff has to make that case by showing that it was predominantly motivated by race, and then the state has to come back and defend that there was a strong basis and evidence for a Voting Rights Act violation. They've never had a case before where a similar challenge was brought to a map adopted by a state Supreme Court, as opposed to one adopted by a legislature. And then there was also the argument that race was the predominant factor. It looks like one argument is the predominant factor here was least change from the prior map. And beyond that, there's a sense that the interplay between the Voting Rights Act and the 14th Amendment is difficult. And indeed, the Supreme Court about a month ago agreed to stay a map adopted by a court in Alabama, but held it over for full argument because of the murkiness of the relationship between the Voting Rights Act and the 14th Amendment. But here, the Supreme Court actually made a ruling on the merits that the language that you quoted about the burden being on the state, whether it's the governor or the state Supreme Court, to show that there was not an alternative means of doing it. I don't think they'd ever ruled that before. And here they're doing it in a so-called shadow docket case without oral argument, without full briefing, and really pretty close to the time where these maps have to be finalized so that the state can do the redistricting to allow the elections for the legislature to begin. So the procedural posture was very unusual. It was a challenge to a map really adopted by a state Supreme Court. It came up on a request for a stay. They turned it into a merits proceeding, and they basically treated the interplay of the Voting Rights Act and the 14th Amendment, which not even six weeks ago, in the opinion by Justice Kavanaugh, they said was very murky and needs full argument. Today they say it's clear and it requires that. Would you just simply explain the interplay of the Voting Rights Act and the Equal Protection Clause. Okay, and I'm not sure simply can do it, but here's <laughs> my best effort. Um, in a case called Chauvey, Reno, which was decided now uh, close to 30 years ago, uh, the Supreme Court said that if the primary motive, the predominant reason for a line drawing is race, then it violates the 14th Amendment, even if the purpose is to provide racial proportional representation. In other words, that was a case coming out of North Carolina where the state uh, sort of drew the, the lines on the map with a clear intent of creating a new black majority district. The court said that raises a serious 14th Amendment problem. Strict scrutiny applies to a map in which race is the predominant reason for the line drawing. It can be justified, though, if it's necessary to remedy a Voting Rights Act violation. And the Voting Rights Act violation has itself several criteria. Uh, but the essence of that is there's um, racial block voting in the community, and the political process is not equally open to minority voters, so that you need to have a plan which gives minority voters a fair opportunity to win a fair number of districts. If it's excessively attentive to race, that's a 14th Amendment problem. The Voting Rights Act can provide a defense for that, but you need to show that you need to attend to race in order to remedy the Voting Rights Act problem. And the question that comes up at this stage, which is given that no one has brought a lawsuit saying that any plan violated the Voting Rights Act, how far in advance can a state go, whether it's the governor or the state Supreme Court, and saying, we think that if we don't do this, there could be a serious Voting Rights Act problem, so this is what we're going to do. I mean, that's really the challenge here, an attack on the 
willingness of state decision makers or governor or state supreme court to take steps to avoid a Voting Rights Act challenge if they think there's a serious possibility that a serious Voting Rights Act challenge could be brought. And what the Supreme Court is saying here is, no, you really have to do all the homework to show that there probably was going to be a Voting Rights Act, not a serious possibility, but you really have to show that if you didn't do it, there would be a Voting Rights Act violation. That puts a really serious burden on state decision makers, in effect, to show that they would be guilty if they didn't do the thing that they were going to do. So the Wisconsin governor, Tony Evers, said, if we have to go back to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, who have already called our maps superior to every other proposal, to demonstrate again that these maps are better and fairer than the maps we have now, then that's exactly what we'll do. So what happens now? He, they go back to the Wisconsin Supreme Court and they make a better argument or a That's different argument? what they would have to do. Now, it's interesting because the Voting Rights Act argument you know, has several prongs to it, several things that under prior Supreme Court precedent somebody has to show in order to show that there was a Voting Rights Act violation. Part of the problem was that both parties below agreed on a number of those prongs so that there was not much litigation about it. And they actually, the Supreme Court said it was done in a very conclusory fashion, but actually that's where Justice Sotomayor makes that point. The reason some of this was conclusory is there actually wasn't much debate. The Supreme Court did not make it very clear what a better argument or what better proof would require, but they will have to make more of an argument. And then they'd have to persuade the Wisconsin Supreme Court again. And that was a four to three decision with the key decision maker this is the Republican justice who voted with the Democrats to say it's a close case. But on balance, I think the governor's map is better. The one question is whether the U.S. Supreme Court's decision will shake the view of Justice Hagedorn of the Wisconsin Supreme Court that the governor's map is better. I mean, I think the governor can come back and make a case. Maybe there's more lawyering that needs to be done. Maybe they have to submit some more affidavits. Maybe they need to put some more empirical evidence in. But in the end, I think much is going to turn on that central justice in the in the Wisconsin Supreme Court, whether he sticks with his prior opinion or whether U.S. Supreme Court has sufficiently shaken him that he changes sides. Do Republicans or Democrats get an advantage with either of these maps? Because it seems like Republicans, from what I've read, Republicans would still remain, you know, the majority. Yeah. I, 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 so that's, that's sort of two questions in one. I think under all the circumstances, the either map in Wisconsin, Republicans would retain majority. Uh, one thought is the governor's map makes it a slightly smaller majority uh, in the legislature. I think it's not clear that that affects the, the congressional delegation at all, uh, which is currently 5-3 Republican, I believe. Maybe, well, maybe, the, maybe the Republicans were hoping for 6-2. I think the one thing that could be the case in the legislature um, – is um, less likely the Republicans would get a supermajority. Because right now there's a Republican legislature with large majorities in both houses um, and Democratic governor. Democratic governor will can veto many things that the legislature does, but if they have two-thirds uh, Republicans, they can override his vetoes. It seems to be that in almost any scenario, the legislature in Wisconsin will remain Republican. The question is how large will the margin be? And that could matter for things like dealing with vetoes. Up until this point, the... The Supreme Court has basically left maps in place, you know, at this point in time, these pre-election, you know, maps no. to be changed. After tw- is that true or no? Well, there was one that the, the one that I think it, it, that connects more to this one is the one from Alabama. The Supreme Court has left alone 
the challenges that seem to go on partisanship and the role of independent districting commissions, because there's a, a new Republican talking point that the use of independent districting commissions is unconstitutional. And that, I think, came up in, or, or the use of state constitutional anti-partisan uh, gerrymandering norms. I think that came up in Pennsylvania and Michigan, maybe. Uh, and the Supreme Court hasn't been, or, or Ohio, the Supreme Court hasn't been buying that. But in Alabama and in Wisconsin, the thing that they did buy was the argument that there was um, uh, that there was excessive attention to race, or that the, um, they they bought challengers' arguments that uh, that the justification for a map under the Voting Rights Act was itself excessively attentive to race, and so they stayed a decision by a federal court in Alabama, which would have which blocked a map in Alabama. The map the federal court in Alabama said felt that that map uh, underrepresented black voters. And uh, he, he stayed that map. The Supreme Court undid that stay and said, no, this map can go forward. Um, uh, and then until so there's a full trial on the merits. And then you get the Wisconsin one, where the Supreme Court not, not only didn't just stay the decision, a uh, lower court decision, but actually overturned it uh, and said, you've got to go back. And again, I think in both of them, what we're seeing is a majority of the Supreme Court um, uncomfortable with uh, the argument that the Voting Rights Act requires uh, additional attention to minority representation. And I think we're seeing this along with the, the Brnovich decision of last year, uh, uh, increasing pushback on the Voting Rights Act uh, as a means of enhancing um, uh, minority representation uh, outside the most open and shut areas of clear-cut discrimination. I guess we'll see what happens when this goes back to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Thanks so much for being on the show, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafalt of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.